All right, grab your Bibles, join me in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, and uh, I'm excited about getting into this chapter, Romans chapter 9, Brother Ryan's coming down the middle aisle, and if you need an outline, we'd love for you to have one, join us and follow along as we look into the beginning a few verses of this chapter, Romans chapter 9, that means we're halfway through, and with every verse, that means we get closer to the end of the book of Romans, and uh, hard to believe we've been in this long, but we have now eight more chapters to conquer, and uh, we ought not to be in a hurry because we gather here to get, uh, study God's Word, amen? And uh, we want to get out from it everything we can, and then and if you get blood from a turnip, maybe we can get a lot from Romans, amen? And uh, so that's our desire as we delve into Romans chapter number 9 here. And I uh, hope you have an outline you can follow along. I'm excited about it. It, it's a, it really is a kind of a different focus these next few chapters. We'll talk about it here. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Some people uh, don't know what to do with the next uh, few chapters. In fact, I like how the old Schofield Bible kind of expresses that confusion over the placement of these chapters that deal with Israel as a nation between chapters 8 and then, or the previous chapters, 8 and the previous ones, and chapters 12 through 15. See, in chapter 8 and previous, we understood there is great doctrinal truth in establishing our faith on doctrinal foundation. And then in chapter 12, we get to the practical. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And so he gets into the very practical outflow of the doctrines found in chapters 8 and previous. And some look at these chapters like, okay, so how do we fit that in? And, and uh, in their mind, it would, seem, it would seem best to go straight from the doctrinal preaching to the practical application. Yet Schofield and others, did you see how he terms it? If you have an old Schofield Bible, at the very beginning of this chapter, he says, parenthetic. Literally, he, he calls it a parenthetical phrase. He, he, he says, okay, let's just put parentheses around these chapters and chapters 9 through 11, 9, 10, 11. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty big parenthetical phrase, isn't it? And as you might find it in a sentence and uh, put parentheses around these chapters. And yet, uh, we understand that. Uh, what, what, is, uh, what they're saying here is basically that Paul inserted a deviation from the main topic. And, and uh, in doing that, he may have been adding a little bit of extra knowledge that isn't altogether important or necessary for the, the whole understanding of his letter. Well, whether that's the case or not, and we can debate that until Christ comes, we ought to know this, that these chapters, now listen, these chapters served a great purpose. They give us a good understanding of God's workings and ways among mankind, uh, specifically uh, those who are his chosen people. So how does God interact, and what about his dealings with those he has chosen, his elect, in, in many ways? There's much here about the actions and the characters of God. There, there's really being given to us in chapters 9 through 11 a glimpse into the mind and heart of God in heaven. The divine creator, the sovereign God, the one who had chosen Israel, and now he is grafting in Gentiles, and he is showing that, that his, his family is open to everyone. And so it gives us a glimpse into the heart and mind of that great God. And there's much detail given about the eternal plan that we were introduced to in chapter 8. So whether you consider this parenthetical uh, chapters or what, the fact is this, it serves a great purpose. 
these chapters do much for our understanding of God's ways. And at the same time, now understand this, they expound upon the justification of mankind by faith alone while answering some of the questions that would have crept up into the minds of Paul's readers. Who were the majority of these readers? Well, yes, it was the book of the Romans, but many of those Romans themselves were not just Gentiles, but many were Jews. And certainly this letter would have been circulated among the known church and the good numbers, certainly in Jerusalem and other places, these were Jews. And so as Paul deals with these things, he uh, helps us to get a better understanding. And for us to have a better understanding of these chapters, let's come face to face with a few different questions that Paul endeavors to answer through chapters 9 through 11. Okay, So if we're going to say, okay, Pastor Henry, what is he doing? Well, I would say there's a slew of questions that Paul answers. But here are three very important ones that would have come up in the minds of his readers, the, the believers that he wrote to. The first one would be this. What, what about a Christian Jew's relationship now to the nation of Israel? Where did they go from here? Their world has been turned upside down as a Jew who is now a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. What does one do with all those covenants in this amazing heritage they once celebrated as in Judaism? As not only a Jew by birth, but one who, who subscribed to that religion. See, those recently saved Jews were steeped in their religious heritage. They were all about their past and their connection to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their forefathers. Their view, remember, coming out of Judaism was Israel was so favored. They were so special compared to other nations and beyond anyone else. They were God's chosen people. And now this whole paradigm shift, in fact, that paradigm has been shattered by the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? That Jesus Christ died for all men. No matter their ethnicity, no matter their nation, the fact is Jesus Christ died for them all. And it did this, it put all men on the same footing before God. And so Paul has to explain to a Jew, how did this happen? How did this come about? What do I do now as a Jew who is a believer, but I'm still a Jew and, and in some ways proud of my heritage? Literally, can I put it this way? When your world is turned upside down in this way as chapters 1 through 8 did for a Jewish believer, they need some time to unpack it unpack all this truth and all of what Paul has presented and what Paul's going to present going forward. So that's what these chapters endeavor to do from the hand of Paul, more importantly, from the heart and mind of the Holy Spirit. The second question is close to it, uh, and this is a crux of this passage. If Israel was chosen by God, and yet they fell out of favor, as even Paul alludes to, and seemingly is true in history, as uh, they've been decimated as a nation, they've been the, the rug uh, of, the na uh, of the world for the world to wipe their feet on, in a sense, and they fell out of favor. And in their minds, and many people said, well, then God was unfaithful, seemingly unfaithful in his covenants to Israel, can the same thing happen to us who Paul just described in chapter 8 as the elect or God's chosen people? Now this is a crucial question. 
Because this is going to pop up in the minds of folks. They're going to look at this. This is, wait a minute. If Israel was chosen, they were God. God said he's going to make a people out of them. And now they're out of favor with God. And seemingly, in a human viewpoint, God has been unfaithful to Israel through all history. Wait a minute, Paul. You're saying that now I'm the chosen elect. What's going to stop God from allowing me to fall out of favor and God being unfaithful to me? Really, if you boil that down, you say, what is at the foundation or what's behind the curtain of that question? And it really brings into question the very character of God. The character of God. Now, I find it interesting for those who might say that this is a parenthetical uh, section or chapters. This is literally a looking for security. And in that contest, it makes perfect sense why this section follows chapter 8, which ended, as we saw, with a resounding treatise on the eternal security of the believer found in Jesus Christ. What's amazing and neat, I think, is to see how Paul, masterfully in these few chapters, in answering these questions, you know what Paul does? He takes the workings of God with Israel in the nation of Israel and show how, shows how it, it only enhances, it only entrenches, and it only expresses the great character of God. See, these next few chapters, Paul's going to expound upon how God dealt with the nation of Israel. And he's going to answer in a masterfully way, you know what? God was faithful to the Jews. And probably the easiest answer to this, you say, well, how do we know that God's faithful to the Jews? Let me ask you this. Can a Jew be saved today? Sure can. Sure can. Let me ask you this. If God were done with the Jews, would a Jew be able to be saved? Nope. If God had written them off? If God said, no, no, you, you forfeited, you failed, no longer am I going to have anything to do with you? No, my friend. And those of us who understand eschatology, those of us who read the Bible literally, we also know this. The answer to the next question. The question that begs itself in the heart and mind of a believer is this. Uh, of a Jewish believer, is God done with Israel? Are they forever gone from the heart and the plans of God? It would have been the question of the forefront of the minds of many believing Jews in that day. Is God done with Israel? Did they forfeit their privileged position never to be mentioned again in God's plan? Isn't it interesting? This doctrinal error that says that God is done with Israel is alive and well today. Reformed theology teaches the, uh, the replacement theology that it's referred to is that the church has completely replaced Israel and all the spiritual promises and benefits that were promised to Israel um, are now assumed by the church. And friend, that just does not fit into dispensationalism. <laughs> and it does not fit, more importantly, into the scriptures. As you read Revelation, as you come to an understanding of the reality of that God is not done with this. But why is that so important? Why would the devil care? Well, I'll tell you, the devil would love to convince people that God gives up on his chosen people quickly. The devil wants you and I to think that God likes to turn his back on the elect. Those uh, who he has elected based on, uh, for us in salvation, our own faith. You know what the devil wants us to think? That God is fickle, that God is vindictive, that God is temperamental. But my friend, the scripture says it. There is no shadow of turning with God. 
God is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. The devil wants you and I to think that God, boy, when we slip up, when we mess up, when we fail, that God then just is done with us. Oh, no, friend, we know that's not true. As we will see, Paul uses these chapters to dispel such thinking. At the same time, he provides encouragement and comfort for the Jews who are going to read this letter. All those fantastic promises to Israel that are yet unfulfilled will indeed happen. That's what he establishes in the chapters. Great, great, and we could go on. There's many questions, but I, you and I, we're putting ourselves in the minds of his readers, especially the Jewish believers, for just a few moments. As they look at this, these chapters, these are some of the questions that Paul is endeavoring to answer. We'll get to that. This is very much an introductory um, study. But now we want to turn our attention to his introductory remarks to these chapters. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 9. He says this, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Let's stop there a second. Number one, I want you to see what this passage, and in fact these first three verses, first of all, I want you to see that they speak to the accurate legitimacy of the attitude and message of Paul concerning the Jews. Verse 1, he wants to establish the accurate legitimacy of both his attitude and his message to the Jews. He's starting this section, he says, listen, I want you to understand something. What I'm about to share is accurate. It is legitimate. And uh, it's a big statement. He is literally giving us a view of his heart and soul. The topic that he is about to write about is Israel and how Israel forfeited some things, how God chose Israel and so forth and so on. And, and this is near and dear to the heart of Paul. It caused him great anguish and sorrow. First, you know what Paul wants us to know? He, he's saying, I'm putting on paper my real emotions. I'm expressing my true passion. Secondly, he wants us to know that there is no bias here in these truths that he shares about God and Israel. So there's no bias present. There's uh, what he talks about God, what he talks about Israel. There, there's no Jewish leanings that color and affect his view of things. On the other end of the spectrum, or the other hand, there's no vendetta. Paul is not angry at Israel. He's not mad. He's not hateful and hurtful. There's no vendetta against the nation. There's no personal agenda clouding his thinking and, and authoring his words. I think that's crucial. Because you know what Paul's not doing? Now listen to me. Listen to me carefully. Paul is not endeavoring to win people to Paul. Paul is endeavoring to win people to Jesus Christ. See, there's a big difference. There's a whole lot of people out there today who want to win people to themselves. Just check out YouTube, amen? Check out the false teachers, the false heretics, and people who just want to make up some truth or, or corrupt the truth to bring followers after themselves. No, Paul is saying, uh, there's no bias here. There's no leanings. There's no attempt to, uh, uh, to reach an agenda or fulfill a personal agenda. He wants us to know that the entirety of this truth he presents here, including his own feelings, his own heart, his own willing sacrifice for his nation, and the biblical explanation of Israel's past, present, and future, is totally accurate and legitimate. You know, I've heard this statement. You ever hear somebody say this? Well, I swear on my mother's grave. 
Okay, great. So <laughs> I don't know your mother, but I'm sure that would be bad. Don't do that, you know. And it's funny what they'll say, you know. They'll, they'll give me a Bible. I'll swear on a Bible, you know. And, and what are they trying to communicate? Listen, what I'm about to tell you, and, and we talked about in a message some time ago, how even the world will still say, that's gospel truth, you know. And I love it when unsaved people use that analogy to talk about how they're speaking the truth because the gospel's true. Well, we, we will use all kinds of things to say, listen, I'm true. You know what's amazing here? What does Paul do? He invokes as his witnesses three people, or three things. One thing, two, three, two people. Jesus Christ, his own conscience, and the Holy Spirit. Now you, ask, now you answer this in your own mind and heart. How quick would we be to invoke those three witnesses about something we said? I think we'd make terribly sure that what we said is the truth. And so Paul is. Paul says, listen, I'm about to share my heart. I'm about to share some passion, my own willing sacrifice. I'm about to share some things about Israel, their past, their present, their future. And I want to tell you, friend, that in Christ, this is the truth. Before my conscience, now we know the conscience can be wrong, but when your conscience is in tune to the Holy Spirit, your conscience can be a great guide, great help. He says that Jesus Christ, my conscience, and the Holy Spirit, these are all witnesses to what I say. It's quite a, conf a confirming statement. Paul's passionate about this. There's no doubt. Now, let me back up. H have you ever gotten passionate and arguing something or talking about something and, and you caught yourself saying something that maybe wasn't fully true? In other words, your emotions talked when you didn't. Your emotions came through more than anything. What he's saying here is this is not just his emotions speaking. Is this, a, is this a subject matter close to Paul's heart? You better believe it. He's a Jew. He came out of Judaism. He loves his nation. There's no doubt of that. And yet it's not going to color the truth. It's not going to give him a bias by which he explains God's dealings and workings with Israel, then God's dealings and workings with the Gentiles, and how God in his perfect sovereignty and as a master of all that is, is going to work everything out according to his perfect will. So Paul wants us to understand that, and it speaks to the accurate legitimacy of his attitude and message concerning the Jews and concerning God. Now notice verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, verse 3, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Man, what a statement. Here's the second truth, or the thing, second thing this passage speaks to. It speaks of the astounding heart attitude that Paul expresses towards his lost countrymen. There's no doubt of it that, boy, in these two verses comes out the full passion, the full burden, uh, the attitude and spirit of Paul. He doesn't mince words. You know what's neat? Let's compare the Paul of Romans chapter 9 to the Paul of many of the letters he writes to the churches. You know what Paul is typically? Paul is typically a man full of joy. See the book of Philippians. Paul is a man who is full of happiness and rejoicing in the Lord always. He is a guy who is typically light on his feet spiritually because he does what? He casts every burden upon God. We know his thorn in the flesh. We know many of the people that he wrote to, the churches that he had the care of on his back. He would in turn cast that upon God. He would cast all your care upon God because he knew God cared for him. Paul got it. Paul was a guy who walked around with joy and happiness in his uh, reputation. His bio was that he consistently gave things over to God. 
But he says here, I am full of heaviness and continual sorrow. Now that is an attention-grabbing statement. This is atypical. This is not the normal Paul. This is not the guy who is full of joy and happiness in the Lord. See, you mentioned the Jewish nation to Paul. Did Paul witness the Gentiles? He sure did. But you mentioned the Jews to Paul, who were lost for the most part, who were a nation deceived by a false religion of law-keeping and personal merit, devised by themselves, and it was taking them down the broad path to hell in the lake of fire. And you know what would happen to Paul? I can just imagine, because sometimes it happens to you and I, we'll be all happy and joyful, and somebody mentions something we don't like, or something comes to mind that is troublesome to us, and what happens? Well, maybe a frown comes on our face, a furrowed brow. I remember just the other day I was thinking about something and, and somebody said to me, are you okay? <laughs> you know, some of us, we have to really focus when we try to focus, you know. Uses every part of your body. You know, and you're, you're, and what do we focus? You know, when something bothers you, how you kind of just kind of get that frown and kind of get that furrowed brow and you kind of get that, uh, maybe we could describe it as a cloud over our countenance. You realize that happened with Paul? That's what Paul's communicating. Paul says, listen, hey, I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ. And he, he's preaching. And then somebody brings up the Jews. And what? Oh, the burden's just heavy. Continual sorrow. It's not an ungodly sorrow. It's not like he's, he's just so, woe is me. I can't get out of bed because of, no, no, no. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, I'm, I just have a continual sorrow for the nation of Israel because they're unsaved. They have left off following God the way that God has orchestrated and that God has demined it. You know when somebody has something on their mind, they've had a tough week, some of us come in on a Wednesday and our Monday and Tuesday have been forgettable. We've had things go wrong, we've had burdens and there's something weighing our heart. You know sometimes you walk in on a Wednesday or even a Sunday from a week and we look way down, we look tired. We look worn out from just living life day by day. Yes, we have grace, but we know life is difficult at times. Life is tough, and, and that was Paul. You want to see Paul look worn out and tired? Talk to him about the Jewish nation. His, he, carried, he carried the world on his shoulders, at least the nation of Israel. His description here, he describes his great burden of his love and his care for Israel as what? Uh, it's a great heaviness. He adds it this way, that the lost Israel was the source of continual sorrow. Continual sorrow. There's some of you sitting right now, okay, you're sitting down, and, and actually you feel pretty good. Your body feels good and everything else. In just a few moments, when I get done preaching in about an hour, um, you'll start to get up out of your pew. What happens for some of us? Oh, oh. Yeah. All of a sudden, we go to use a part of our body, and guess what? We're reminded it's there. Because it causes us pain, it causes us hurt, and a continual, ow, okay? I'm telling you, the older I get, that's why every morning I got something with uh, this autoimmune disease and everything. I just get horrible pain when I wake up in the morning across my, my hips and my shoulder. Every morning it seems like I wake up with it. And I, I remember, oh, I'm alive because I have pain. Can't wait to wake up in heaven and there'll be no pain, amen? It'll be a good day. But we have those things, right? And we remember, that's like it was for Paul, boy. You, you mentioned the Jews. You mentioned Israel. And oh, let's be honest. There's some people in your life right now that the mention of their name 
you cast your eyes upon them and it affects you. Because they're a burden. For better or for worse, for good or for bad, they're a burden to you. It could be a family member. It could be a friend that you care tremendously about. It could be someone going through a health issue. and Boy, you're just burdened for them. It doesn't matter. That person's name comes up. Or, or you think of that for a moment. Oh, it just affects you. It affects your countenance. It affects you, your whole being. And, oh, that was Paul. That's what Paul is communicating in verse 2. It is a godly sorrow. It affects him, a burden and a heaviness of heart that was for the entire nation. You and I can, can pick up through the entire New Testament, Paul was a man of strong passion. And there is no greater passion that he expressed than for his desire for the salvation of the entire nation of Israel, the lost nation. I like how one commentator put it. He, he described Paul this way, and I think this is a good characterization of Paul. He wrote this, speaking of Paul. When he looked at Christ, he rejoiced. But when he looked at Israel, he wept. I think that's true. I think, I think when Paul, you talk about Christ, the Paul, and Paul, boy, he gets all excited. Boy, he's just, yeah, Christ, oh, man, that road to Damascus, I'll never forget it. It's the greatest day of my life. And I, I love serving my King of Kings and my Lord of Lords. And I can't wait to the day I see him face to, I mean, you get Paul going. It's like for some of you, we can just mention one thing, and you'll talk for an hour. You get super excited. Paul was like that about Jesus Christ. But then you mention Israel to, to Paul, and that countenance drops, and maybe he just drops his head and just shakes his head. And the sadness, the sorrow, the continual sorrow just appears. Why? Because his heart was broken. He was burdened for the nation of Israel. You don't take that light. It isn't fake. It isn't put on. Because if that isn't powerful enough, verse 2, then we, he adds verse 3 that puts it over the top. Literally, if he was willing, if it were possible for himself to be accursed, if it would work to save Israel. The Greek word translated as accursed is one that you are likely familiar with. You know what it is? Anathema. Anathema, just kicked out, out of the presence of God. Anathema, Paul was willing to be that with God for Israel. To put it in spiritual terms, he was willing to forgo his own salvation for the salvation of the nation of Israel, his own people. It's, well, he's just saying that because he knows that, that he can't lose his salvation. No, my friend, this is the expression of a pure heart. If... If we believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration, do you really think that if this was a put-on, if Paul was just saying this to say it, to build himself up, do you really think God would allow that to end up in the Scriptures? I don't. I think the Holy Spirit said, yeah, Paul, you go ahead and write that because that's, I see that's what's in your heart. You really would do that if you could. Now, I don't know about you, friend, but that puts me to shame. That challenges me. Because that's a whole different level that I fail to attain sometimes. And yet that's what he says. This is a sincere statement by one of the greatest soul winners to have walked this earth. This was his heart. Now remember, who are the witnesses? Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. They're attesting to this. That's what he says in verse 1 about this passage. For those who now understand why this is important too to his readers. 
Some of those would read those previous chapters, and even the chapters to come, they say, listen, Paul must hate Israel. Paul hates Israel. He's just mad at Israel. And, and No, no, no. Those who would become critical at reading his statements, here is his heart. Some would have perceived his hatred for the nation. This would have closed their mouths. Here is love and action if it were possible, not just lip service, but a genuine love for his people. And what a challenge it is. Not that you and I would, would walk down through Fostoria and say, listen, I wish I, could, I wish I could die for you. I wish I could go to hell for you. Not at all. The challenge for you and I is simply this, to love the lost. It doesn't have to be on that level, but to love the lost at all. To care about their souls. You see, to have a passion and a compassion for them that moves me to do whatever it would to take uh, to see them come to trust in Christ. It's a burden. That burden we talked about on Sunday afternoon. As we look ahead to our 2020 uh, vision in 2020, the reality of saying, listen, I, I, there are souls to be saved. There are souls who are saved, believers who need to be discipled, and there are those who are being discipled that need to join a local church. It's a burden that moves us. Can I put it this way? And I think it, it, we need to wrap our minds around this. You say, well, Pastor Henry, I can't say that about Paul. I don't think God's asking, or say what Paul said about the, the Israelites. I, I don't think God wants you to say that. But I do, I do believe this. I think God wants you to have a burden for the lost. God wants me to have a burden for the lost. In fact, may I put it this way, and I think this is a, a good statement that sums it up. The lost in the community around us don't need someone in us who loves them enough to willingly take their place in hell, but rather they need someone who loves them enough to share the gospel. Because someone already did that for them. He already took their place on the cross of Calvary. They don't need us to do that. What they need us to do is to care enough to share. To care enough to share. And my friend, this was only of the Lord that we had this message moved to after Sunday night because it reinforces everything we talked about on Sunday afternoon. Caring enough to share. Caring enough to go on a KFC and hand out a track. Caring enough to care about family members and share the gospel. Caring enough to tell people about Jesus Christ and go door to door. Caring enough to, that we would see souls saved. That's what Paul is communicating here and is a challenge for you and I as believers. Do I care to that degree? Do I love people and souls who are lost? Am I burdened where the thought of those dying and going to hell and eventually the lake of fire, it's a continual sorrow to me. It's a heaviness upon me. I'll tell you, my friend, that is a convicting thought, isn't it? That I need to see souls that way. And yet, if you'll permit me, we'll quickly finish this up. The fact is this, I don't think that is um, the most amazing part of this passage, these three verses. I wonder if we've ever thought about this aspect of it. Do you remember Paul? The Paul of the first few chapters of Acts when his name was Saul. Ask this question. I don't ask it to get you to answer out loud. I ask you just to think. So would you think about the answer to this? Saul, as he was known in those chapters, was he as passionate and zealous in his religious commitments then as he is now in serving Jesus Christ? Yeah, he was zealous, wasn't he? I mean, you talk about somebody who was all in 110% about what he was doing. That was Saul. But there was a huge difference. 
One that speaks to the amazing power of Jesus Christ. Okay, don't miss it. You see, when Paul was zealous in his following after God in Judaism, he lacked one important thing besides the faith in Jesus Christ that he lacked. When he carried Christian families away from their homes to be persecuted and, and, and killed for their faith in Christ, he didn't have that. Now don't forget this. Many of those he carried away from homes, many of those he took to be put to death were Jews, his countrymen. When he stood idly by and yet passively supportive of the events taking place when Stephen, a Jewish believer, was being stoned and murdered, he didn't have it. As he traveled the land hunting believers, some of them Jews, he didn't have it. It wasn't until that road to Damascus when he came face to face with Jesus Christ and he would be spiritually changed or altered forever did he get it. What, what change was it? What happened? This, this amazing change in Paul. What, what do we see in grass? Well, these verses show just how powerful a change occurred in Paul. And don't miss it tonight. You see, when others, even Jews, did not hold the same beliefs as Saul, beliefs that in his mind were leading people astray from the truth, how did Saul respond how did Saul respond? Righteous indignation. He was full of hatred. He was full of uh, persecution for sure. Malice, disdain. Saul, he came to the fight, man. He was ready to take people out. And he did. Well, let me ask you this. When Paul, when Paul was confronted with others not believing the same as him and even believing things detrimental to the truth, how did Paul respond? Paul, the man who met Jesus Christ and was changed forever, he didn't try to kill people. He showed them love and compassion. You see, in this moment, you know what Paul is demonstrating? And I want you to get this, and I want you to hang on to it. I want you to never forget it when you come across Romans chapter 9. We read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and we think, wow, this is about Paul. I mean, Paul has this, he is continually sorrowful. He is heaviness. He just loves Israel. He wished himself to be accursed. And in that sense, it is about Paul. But I'm going to tell you something tonight that I hope we never forget. You know what Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 is about more than Paul? It is about Jesus Christ and the change that can be affected in one person. The change that Christ made. Do you realize that this guy who before was known for going in people's homes, dragging them out, throwing them to lions and other forms of persecution and killing them, separating families, moms and dads and children, because simply he thought he had righteous indignation, he had a right to stand up for the truth, and he thought this is the way you did it. Isn't it amazing the change that Jesus Christ has made? Because you know what he's willing to do now? I don't want them to die take me instead. Isn't that amazing? I mean, now he looks at and he's got the heart of Jesus Christ. He's got love and compassion for people that blows it away because here is this old man. But this guy, you know what? He has mercy. He has grace. He has amazing pity. This is, this is that Saul? Yeah. This is Saul after Jesus Christ touches his life. 
He's not wishing death upon the Jews. And you say, well, Pastor Henry, he, he, that, that, that's because these are his countrymen. May I tell you, he dragged out Jews to throw to the lions. He stood by when Stephen, a Jew, was being stoned for his faith. And he supported it. And I want you to see this evening that a guy who knew little of mercy and grace and pity came to Jesus Christ. And it all changed. I'll tell you, my friend, who, who, who can put love and compassion in one's heart for one's enemy better than Jesus Christ can? Who can? Boy, I tell you tonight, as we read this passage, as we endeavor to look at chapters 9 through 11, we start by praising God for the change that happened in Paul's life. We praise God for the fact that he has made that kind of change in our lives. And you know what we ought to end tonight with in our prayer time? We ought to ask God to grow our compassion and our burden for the lost today. Lord, I, uh, you know my heart. I, 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 I couldn't say that I wish I myself was a curse for the people of Astoria, but Father, I want to love them. I want to have a burden for them to come to trust Jesus Christ, my neighbor, my co-worker, my family member. Father, grow my burden, grow my compassion. May I be like Paul. And may you and I come to the point where we care enough to share.